Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Try to make sense out of the senseless. And if at all possible, find the obvious bared in the absurd. Let's go. taking care of business every day, if at all possible. So glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Once again, through the magic of technology, people are listening all the way down in Adelaide, Australia. I still get a kick out of that from a week ago when uh, I was doing a show on WCRW 1190 AM, which airs on Sundays in Washington, D.C. It's called the Dow of Music. And uh, I put up a couple of shows uh, in the last two weeks, and both of them had a country bend to them. And at one time, I put Colin Hay in there. And I don't know if that was the magic that sparked it, but uh, I got a, a message on Facebook from someone who's listening in Adelaide, Australia. And that's what technology does. So while I'm very thankful that you're listening from anywhere and everywhere, I get a kick out of the fact that somebody in Australia, where it's like already next Wednesday or something, right? They're listening uh, to the Life 2.0 podcast. So glad to have you joining me. They, they, sent me a note saying that it was about the music show, but they also listened to the podcast. I'm thinking, that's just crazy, but so appreciated. So there you go. Um, this, you know, I'll be going through my week and something will trip my trigger and pop into my mind. I say, oh, I want to, I want to kind of expand on that. And if you've been listening to these podcasts over the last five years that I've been doing them, uh, you know that I never turn this microphone on without making some attempt to do is what I said in the open is to, you know, to make sense out of the senseless, if at all possible, find the obvious stuff that's buried in the absurdity of life. And that's an ongoing process, that's for sure. Uh, but this past week, I, I was sitting down, had a rare moment from not doing some sort of audio production or other thing. And I actually took time to not be uh, at the computer desk or in my studio, but actually in front of the TV on Netflix. And Netflix is another thing that I never thought I'd see in my life. When I was a kid growing up, there was a movie a week on. It's called the movie of the week. And sometimes on Sunday night, there was like the CBS Sunday night movie, which they kind of resurrected a few years ago during the uh, pandemic as a novelty stop, I think, for people. But by and large, you know, the movies you saw on television were just old movies. There's an old movie channel. Of course, that's drastically changed with a bajillion channels to choose from. To me, it's almost, you know, creates blind spots. There's no way you could watch most of this stuff. And it is a constant bombardment of this is the latest and greatest offering and you must watch this miniseries. And eh, not so much. But anyway, I did have a few minutes and I, I always enjoyed David Letterman's show when he was on late night TV. I thought he was a very funny guy and uh, really good with guests. Great interviewer. Uh, no politics back then when he was on. You never saw that out of Dave or Johnny Carson or even Jay Leno. Uh, but these days, it seems like politics infiltrates everything. But I remember a time on late night TV that it did not. And when Dave retired, even though I didn't get to watch every night, I thought he was just a really intelligent guy. So he retires, takes some time off, and he comes back with this Netflix show called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And it's uh, Dave in a very intimate setting at different locations around the country, one-on-one -on -one conversation with a small studio audience, uh, having, you know, intelligent uh, conversation. What a concept. And I think that's the thing that he didn't have time to do when he was on every night because he's only has X, you know, he's got an hour show and you got to have four or five guests on, but he was pretty adept at uh, moving things along and having fun in the process. So 
Uh, this show is a little bit different. Uh, he's grown this enormous beard that he could never grow and work with, you know, on television. So he's done it for Netflix. He looks like Walt Whitman to me. So it's like Walt Whitman interviewing people. Hilarious. And he's done some, not surprising, some great interviews. And the conversations I always thought uh, were really, really good. Uh, and so when you go on Netflix and you find this show, and if you have Netflix, it's not hard to do. Uh, and you go through there and you get to sit for a little while. And I know it's hard for people to sit sometimes these days. Our attention span is shot at this point. But I think there's some value in turning off all the other distractions and listening to conversation with people and see if there's something that might be in there to be extracted as a learning tool or learning piece, something that may be, you know, of value. So for the record, I've never been a fan of Howard Stern. Uh, he came out as a radio shock jock. Uh, he is obviously well known for that. He wrote a book called Private Parts, which is about his uh, rise to fame. Not surprised at the title. And look, I'm no prude at all. I mean, I, I just never understood the, the, the connection people had with what he did. Um, he basically talked like a bunch of guys I knew in high school and got away with it and paid a lot of money and pissed off a lot of program directors. So maybe that was the allure. But I think there's something to be said for anybody who's on uh, behind a microphone, for better or for worse, that that says things you wish you could say in public, maybe, uh, and get away with it, which is the other part of it, and you know, without somebody taking you down to the principal's office and stuff. But I never understood it. Uh, I just never thought it was that good. Uh, just those 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 shtick that he had and all that kind of stuff, and it was all made up. Like it's theater of the mind. Radio, by and large, is th theater of the mind, no matter what the subject is. So. Maybe because I was kind of past all that stuff and it never really did much for me anyway, I didn't get it. I never really listened. Every now and again, I'd catch something and I thought, I don't get it at all. But there are people who love this guy and they swear by this guy and they made him a household name. And then I believe around 04, 2004, which seems like a million years ago, uh, Sirius XM came calling to Howard's door. They gave like a 10-year billion-dollar contract or something. I'm just making part of those things up. But it's, it's somewhere in that neighborhood. And he moved from terrestrial radio, which he, you know, was kind of the king of all media, to a select group of uh, subscribers. And something got lost in the process. The people who were with him when he was on, quote, free terrestrial radio, uh, a lot of them did not transfer over, and, and, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, because I worked at uh, Harpo, creating Oprah Radio with a great team of people, that I, I'm thinking the people at XM said, listen, you know, he's got this guy's got millions of listeners, they're all going to follow him and become subscribers, and that didn't happen. And it did not happen when Oprah Winfrey did it either. I, I think there was a lot of reasons for that, which is a different show, but there, you know, to think that just because somebody was moving platforms that all these other people are going to fork over cash to listen to what they've been, uh, you know, ingesting for years for free is not a good business plan. So that didn't happen, number one. And number two, he started to realize, I think, over time that what he did on terrestrial radio, even though he had free reign to say anything he wanted, basically, at XM, wouldn't work. Part of his shtick was saying things right to the edge of good taste and fill in the blank and then having uproar and, and kickback. You know, he was able to piss off the powers that be. It was all part of his, his shtick and his act. And when he got over to Sirius XM, they said, you could say anything you want because there's no FCC, you know, regulation here. 
all of a sudden he said, it didn't matter. I didn't want to say that stuff anymore because it was a different audience to some degree. And I think even though he'd been a pretty adept interviewer, he got better as he moved along in Sirius XM over the years. And then what I found most fascinating, he started showing up on like American Idol or The Voice or some of these game shows as like a judge. And he was this nice guy, totally opposite of what he did on the radio. And so the, I didn't understand that either. I said, okay, so, you know, what's he been doing all these years? Is he been like a lot of people I know in radio being inauthentic? They're just making stuff up as they go along to get paid. And the, the more outrageous you get, the more listeners you get, the more money you make because there's more sponsors. That's the formula. It's not hard to figure out. Politics and sports, the more outrageous you get, the more headlines you can grab. Uh, the more you talk about shit you never did but acted like you do, um, that's what audiences are all about. And the job of someone behind a microphone is to build and hold an audience, bottom line. If you can't build and hold an audience, you don't get behind the microphone. And there are some other factors in there. I know some really, really talented people that built audiences and held them, but they were let go for other reasons. But that's really the basic premise. So now you got a different deal. For Howard, when he was on terrestrial radio, he built and kept an audience because of his, his shtick, which I keep using that word, but that's a word that he uses often as well. And when he got to the point where they took the handcuffs off of, all of a sudden the challenge wasn't there. It's not as much fun. So he goes into this interview mode. He's got still got a pretty good size audience, obviously, at XM Sirius, which is now just Sirius. It was two companies back then. Now it's just one. And he became a really good interviewer. And I think what happened is he was able to, because of the audience, he still did silly stuff, obviously, on occasion. He had a great, by the way, great uh, second at Robin, who, if you're doing that much radio long form, you need to have someone to bounce off of, if at all possible. And Robin was the perfect person for him, kind of kept him focused on things. And so anyway, all of this comes out because I landed on one of the episodes with David Letterman talking to Howard Stern. And I at first thought, I don't want to hear this crap. And then I thought, maybe I want to hear this crap. So I listened to that crap and it turned out it wasn't crap at all. I don't know that I owe like an apology or anything to Howard Stern on any level because it did kind of, he was like benign to me. It's like, I don't get it. So I don't, I don't get it. But the man that I heard on this interview many years later after being the guy he used to be was, was commendable and admirable and honest. And I'll say that up front, if you've not seen these, my next guest needs no introduction by David Letterman, you really should find him because there's a lot of good stuff in there, especially the one with Howard Stern. And they went to this place. Uh, of course, I'm very interested as someone who's had a 25 year career in radio where they were talking about this, who he was back then. And he went on to tell a story of how he grew up and, and what he saw and a lot of the, 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 uh, the neighborhood he grew up in was predominantly white and they were trying to integrate the neighborhood back in the sixties. And he said, all my neighbors were white and we were all the same. And they'd always talk about, you know, being fair to everybody. He said, but as soon as a black family moved in, things changed. The white people didn't act like that. They just talk like that. And so he would get incensed at this, that they were all hypocrites. And early on, it was formed in him to call out that kind of behavior where he saw people saying one thing, but doing another. That's where all his angst came from. So what he did was he enjoyed pissing off the program directors on one hand, but he also enjoyed calling out this hypocritical actions by anybody he could get his hands on. And he said at, at some point it got out of control and he, be, he became 
the monster that he was creating, much like Frankenstein. And it cost him his first marriage and some of the relationship stuff with his kids. And he said, at one point, I realized that I could no longer be that guy. And a part of it was moving to, to uh, satellite radio. And he said, it was just such an interesting experience. You have to understand, I'd made my life, my money, my career on being outrageous, over the top, pushing the limits. And as soon as the handcuffs were off, I didn't want to do it anymore. Just very interesting. So in his therapy, he talked about, and he'd gone to a therapist, he talked about some of the damage that he had done by being that person, by calling things out, by saying things he shouldn't have said, only chalking it up to the fact that he was being authentic, however, at the time about how he felt with things. He may not have expressed it the best way possible, but he came to the realization that he had hurt a lot of people's feelings and caused damage at some level probably not to listeners per se, because they otherwise they wouldn't be listening, but to, to targets that he had. And David Letterman at one point was one of his targets, as it turns out. And they got over that and became friends. And so here are these two titans of talk, we'll call them, you know, uh, kind of backslapping and bro-hugging each other on the stage after all these years. And I found that to have great value to me. And I'll tell you why. And that's a little bit of what this, if not all of what this podcast is about this morning is the authenticity factor, which is different than people who make shit up and go on the radio just to get a check. Because there's a lot of that I'm here to tell you. One of the most difficult things uh, for me, being in radio all these years and and behind the microphone uh, as a host, thousands of hours of that, thousands of hours in production, thousands of hours in the business, is I can tell you when I'm listening to the radio who the clones are. You know, and I'm going to go into the political arena. Like, uh, so Rush Limbaugh had huge success. And I bet at least half of what he talked about was an act to some degree. He saw himself as entertainer. He had to live it in order to, to, to keep doing it. And eventually, I think it consumes a person to a, a great degree. But there's a thousand like him. Because if that works, then I'll just do that. Even though you may not totally be that, you become that in order to pull it off. And that's not authentic. But it's radio. And it's theater of the, of the mind. And that's what Howard Stern was talking about. That part of him at the time, even though it did damage, was who he was, but a lot of it was all shtick. He talked at one point about getting the FCC uh, sicked on him by consumer groups because he had a man playing the piano with, a, with his penis on the air. He said that they did never get it, no matter how many times I explained it. There was no man with his pants down, playing the piano with his penis. All I did was say it and knocked out a few notes on a toy piano, and people thought there was really a guy doing that. That's how much people will buy into things no matter what. I'll never, ever forget the time I was on the air in uh, in Michigan many years ago. And I Limbaugh was on from noon to three, and I was on from three to six for probably four years in a row, diametrically opposed in content. Uh, for all his political rhetoric and for all the inflammatory comments, as a broadcaster, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant broadcaster. He was technically sound. He, whether you agreed or disagreed, for me, I'm coming from a pure journalistic perspective. He was brilliant in his delivery, his ability to build and keep an audience. That's the whole game. And the content to someone like me is like third on the list. How does he do that? So I took a lot of cues from him. And what I found is over the years when I was on the air back to back, I started to get a huge holdover audience, mostly because, not because of the content, because I rarely, I surely didn't dive into politics like Limbaugh did, 
but I understood how he held and kept an audience. I was learning from him back to back. And I applied some of how he did that. Again, not about content, but delivery and pacing and energy and pausing and things. He was a master at that. His content, questionable. His delivery, his professionalism, never questioned, in my opinion. But to illustrate the point of people hearing what they want to hear, uh, one day I got a letter from a listener who said, I just absolutely love what you're doing on the air, but I can no longer support your work because you took the Lord's name in vain and that's blasphemy and I can't, I can't support that. And I, what, what the heck would I have said on FCC regulated airtime that would have offended somebody in a way that was blasphemous? So I had my producer, Ann, call this person. They left their phone number to their credit because a lot of times you get stuff in the you know, this shit shows up and there's nobody's even a name on it telling you all kind of weird things and stuff like that. But that's a different show. But this particular time, she had her phone number in her. So Ann called the woman. She was very nice and very polite. And she said, well, you know, I, I like what John does. But, you know, he implied and said that Jesus the Christ, my Lord and Savior, was a cigar smoker. <laughs> and, and, and I can't abide by that. And I will not support that. And I'm sorry, but I will no longer listen to the show. But thank you for calling me and letting me complain. So I had Ann go back and listen to tapes for about 10 days previous to when we got the letter, when this woman said that I created this and committed this horrible offense. And there's, of course, nothing there. I never said anything remotely close to that. I don't smoke cigars. I wouldn't say anything about a cigar. And I sure as shit wouldn't say Jesus smoked a cigar. There'd be no point. What we did find is because I was back-to-back with Limbaugh, who was a cigar aficionado in a big way, I had her go listen past our start time, probably six, eight minutes into the previous tapes of Limbaugh's show. Sure as shit, she found it. Limbaugh said at some point, Jesus Christ, I had a great cigar last night. So we found it. I didn't even say it. He said it. It makes more sense. I had Ann call the woman back, explain everything, and she still didn't believe it. No, no, I know what I heard. And I heard John say, Jesus smokes cigars. Unbelievable, but not so much. So Stern talked about those things, you know, how, how that went along for him. And it's interesting to me that the more he was released, the more authentic he got and was able to see his inauthenticity, if that makes any sense that the fact that he couldn't do what he used to do, which what he was known for when he was given permission to do it was a huge lesson for him. Like, there's a reason I am this way. And it's not just about radio. So he's become a different guy to some greater or lesser degree. And it's not often, I think, that you get an opportunity to see somebody change within their lifetime. You know, there's a lot of courage it takes to do that. For a guy like him to come out and admit that he's been in therapy, uh, admit that he ruined his first marriage, admit that he hurt people without thinking and say it in public to, to David Letterman, who was at one point, you know, the target of some of his attacks, uh, says a lot about him. And I think about the shows that I've done over the years. And the one thing I can tell you is I've never had to go back and apologize to anybody for any kind of attack because I just can't do that. That's not in my repertoire. It's not in my content process to do any kind of radio like that where there was this, this you know, lower life form sensibilities of the world. I just found no value in it. And so I felt really good, quite frankly, 
even though there's a lot more people that know about Howard Stern than know about me, that I've never had to do that, that I've never had to give up who I am to do what I'm here to do. And the authenticity of this show that I do, you know, I think about it quite often when I sit down behind this microphone. At one point, I think the largest audience I've ever had was about three and a half million people when I did a show on Oprah Radio for a few years on Saturday mornings. The rest of the time I was hired to coach the Oprah and Friends talent to a greater list degree and work with, like I mentioned, a great team to do that. So I had a weekly show and I really enjoyed doing it. I did some one minute things and enjoyed doing them, but it was a huge audience. It was three and a half million people, like I said at the time, at, at some point. And then to talk the certain way that I did and to insist on the things that I did, I'm not doing it any different now when I know there's not three million people listening. But that's the difference to me. I'm not about building and holding an audience anymore. It's about, I've had that success. What can I do that's significant that may or may not be connected to, to this show? So podcasting has changed the landscape of, of radio. There's no question about that. I get to say shit all I want and nobody cares except me. And I kind of understand a little bit what Stern's talking about because podcasting is not regulated either. So I can literally say every word that you're not supposed to say on, on uh, FCC overlooked terrestrial radio, but that doesn't mean I need to. It's like the Jurassic Park thing I always bring up. You know, not, not every idea is a good idea. Just watch Jurassic Park. You can make dinosaurs doesn't mean you should. And so just to sit back and watch these two guys go at it. And, and it was funny because Howard Stern walks out with a huge beard and, and cracks up Dave. I just found it highly valuable. Never once found any of the Howard Stern shows, especially in the earlier, is valuable. David Letterman at night was like a relief for the day. But this was a different deal. So if you get the opportunity to sit down and listen to that um, with David Letterman on Netflix, the episodes are great. And they're all funny, and but they're insightful. And here's Dave, who is a, a staunch conservationist uh, and has become even more and more of an environmentalist over the years, you know, talking about these things. And so it gave me a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, hmm, insight into transition, especially when it comes to the media. At some point, Letterman was the most watched guy on TV. He'll tell you he was the luckiest guy too, how he, you know, how it all turned out for him. And the fact that he's still doing, he said the Netflix people came in and said, so if we gave you a show, what would you like to do? He goes, I've been talking to people in front of an audience for 35 years. What do you think I want to do? And that's where the idea came from. And But he still had to re reinvent himself. This is not like late night with David Letterman. It's different. And he had to adjust to that. And I think for me, that was another lesson. You know, I don't know that I'll ever go in another radio studio again. I miss it. Uh, you know, the days of me doing three hours a day, five days a week for years on end, I don't know that that'll ever come back. But that doesn't mean I feel any less responsible when I turn this microphone and talk to people in Adelaide, Australia, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Beijing, China, or Toronto, Canada, I mean, it's all the same to me. And if it isn't the same, I should have never started this to begin with. But it is. And so in all of this, I think this whole thing to me comes down to being authentic, your authentic self as best you can. It may not fit everywhere. Sometimes you have to use the lesson of discernment, which means you know when to hold them and know when to fold them and know when to walk away, know when to run. And that discernment comes over time and with maturity. I've been in many, many meetings where I thought these people all need to have a full frontal lobotomy while I have a full bottle in front of me. And I couldn't say that. They wouldn't look at me the same way ever again. So I kind of back off on those things. 
But being your authentic self in a world that is very, at times, seems inauthentic is a great challenge. So much of the information that comes to us is, is fractured and fictional, and we're supposed to accept it as is, and it's not easy to do that. But discernment over time is, like I said, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a strainer. You know, you pour stuff through and some th- things get caught in there, and you got to figure out what's caught in there. Is it worth keeping or not? Is it worth throwing it away or worth hanging on to it? And it's, uh, it's a constant tug of war with those things. But I think, you, once again, going back to the example of Letterman and Stern, uh, who two guys I never would have attributed this type of insight to ever, if they can do this, then it's possible for other people to do this. And I think that they, I mean, that was the big takeaway. These are guys who both made huge money and had huge audiences on comedy and not on human relationships, let's put it that way. And now I'm watching these two talk about human relationships and less about comedy. It's really, really fascinating. So if you get an opportunity one more time, if you're a Netflix person, go find it. Uh, Maybe you'll have some different takeaways than me, but I just found it was worth my, I don't know, 48 minutes, whatever it was, sit down and watch these two. A couple of times I found myself laughing out loud because they're both really funny, but then they'd go to the other end of this thing and... uh, you know, uh, part of me wanted to write Howard a little note and say, listen, at one time, and this is true, in 1999, I believe it was, I don't think it was 2000, it might have been, 99, 2000, Charter Communications, when I was doing my show in Michigan, uh, was a, I don't even know if they're still around, but Charter Communications was a, a internet company, a cable company, and they had an idea to put a camera in my studio, a TV camera. I thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, that's ridiculous. This is radio. The only cameras we have in here are security cameras. What are you talking about? So what they wanted to do was they had seen a couple of radio hosts with television shows or, or, or simulcast of their radio show on TV. Don Imus was one, and I believe Stern was the other. There was a third guy. I was the fourth radio talent in America to have a camera in my studio that I know of and that they knew of, and they wanted to try it. And I was a reluctant participant for quite a while. I thought this is just crazy. I got enough going on behind the scenes with the microphone and the work I do behind the scenes to worry about a TV camera. Like, no, 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 it'll be remote. We'll take care of it. You won't even know it's there. Okay. So I agreed to it. Uh, Somewhere I still have VHS tapes of those shows, maybe six of them out of the probably year and a half, two years I did that. And what two things happened, actually more than two things, but the two prominent things of that happened. Number one is, uh, that whole concept I was wrong about. I thought, again, much like Sirius XM Radio, who the hell's going to pay for satellite radio when you can listen for free and sit through commercials and change the channels? So I was wrong about that. And number two, I thought, who in the world's going to sit in their house and watch me do radio for three hours a day from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock p.m. Monday through Friday? Don't they have a life? Are you kidding me? Well, what happened from that was the, as soon as they flipped that switch in my studio, whatever day that was back in 99, I'm guessing, I immediately went into 80 markets via television, not radio. In, in radio, I was in two markets maybe, but for TV, all of a sudden it expanded the footprint of what I was doing. And now I'm getting cards and letters and calls and questions and queries and, and uh, other things from, and I mean a lot of other things that we won't talk about. Um, from people that were way outside the listening reach of radio. The magic of technology, once again, it wasn't quite Adelaide, Australia yet, but it was 80 markets uh, west of Michigan. I thought that was just like, I couldn't believe it. 
And that's how fast it can happen. And I stayed with that for, about, like I said, about a year, year and a half. And eventually I started playing to the camera a little bit, you know, and waving a little bit so people knew I was there. It's kind of like this looking over somebody's shoulder thing that people find fascinating. And now it's everywhere. Never would have guessed that. So in some ways it makes me feel a little anxious. I was there when the fourth guy was on TV and all that kind of stuff. I really got to find those tapes because they got to be hilarious. Uh, but it was one of those things that I, I don't realize sometimes how many miles I've traveled in this business and the things that I've done. And I, well, Stern was talking and obviously at a very different level than me, not better or not worse, just different level. I could relate to so much of what he talked about. And I never, ever thought I'd be doing that. And that's a lesson in itself. All right. I hope you have a great day. You found some value in what we're doing here. I want to thank my subscribers, those people who make this show possible. Uh, I appreciate it greatly. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Keep the faith.